Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 35, I interview Tony Karp, the CEO and Managing Director of Prezi, a digital gifting product that unlocks 140 plus retailers. We discuss how moving from South Africa to Australia in his last year of high school meant he received a low HSC mark and had limited career opportunities. How he pushed through this setback and worked his way across multiple career paths to become the COO of David Jones. What he learned working at an iconic century-old retailer through the golden years and the hard times. Why he went from running a team of 200 plus staff to being employee number 10 in a startup. He explains the relentless focus he brought from the analog business world to the digital gifting business when he became CEO, which led to their 400% growth, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. We discuss their plans to be much more than a digital gifting business and why they see themselves as a payment platform and potentially a future currency. If you're looking to easily buy, send and store gift cards, check out prezi.com.au. That's P-R-E-Z-Z-E-E.com.au. So I'm here with Tony Karp, the CEO and Managing Director of Prezi. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Prezi? What did you study? What type of companies did you work in? What sort of roles? Uh, so, look, I've got a very vague and uh, I've managed to reinvent my career probably three or four times since I left, um, since I left high school and went to uni. Um, I studied hotel management, but I, uh, I didn't do very, very well at that and then left that industry in total um, and went into, um, uh, into retailing. And, uh, and that had some legacy because my dad uh, is, a, is a second, third generation retailer, both in South Africa and then we came to Australia and he ran retail stores here. And so um, probably the last major role that I had was as the Chief Operating Officer at David Jones. And I was there for around 10 years, uh, both through the really good times and maybe some of the less good times if you follow some of the news reports associated with David Jones. Uh, and ultimately, David Jones was then acquired um, by a South African company called Woolworths, no relation to Woolworths Australia, um, at which point I left, um, I left DJs and I was doing some freelancing work actually for Woolworths Australia. Uh, when one of the major uh, private equity shareholders into Prezi rang me up and um, asked me to go and have a you know have a look at the business to understand if it had uh, uh, if it had the ability to 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 continue, they'd bought into the business and they'd actually funded the business right from the very very beginning with the two co-founders, Claire Morris and Matt Hargett. And um, you know at that point it was probably at a at a crossroads of of whether it was going to survive um, and. What I, what I saw when I came in here was a very viable business that just lacked, like a lot of startups, it just lacked certain disciplines. Um, you know, startups are great. You want to have fun. You want to have the cool office. You want to have the pool table. Everybody walks around with a hoodie and, a, <laughs> and, a, and an Apple Mac. Hmm. Um, but, prof, but profit and, and, uh, and, and, and strategy are probably two things that aren't strong um, in startups, at least in my experience with the ones that I've been involved in. So... You know, the private equity company asked me to step into the role of CEO um, and 
you know, that journey has been, it's been an amazingly fast paced growth journey. Um, but one which has been incredibly successful, um, both for me personally and also, you know, from a, from a business perspective, just in looking at where we've come from and where we are at this moment, poised to break into the international market. And so if we um, rewind a little bit, so you're at high school, you enroll in sort of studying hotel management. Was that, had you traveled around a lot as a kid? Was it just an option, someone else, a a parent, a friend, someone pointed you towards? Was it random? How did you sort of choose Uh, hotel management? um, Look, it was probably also had a lot to do with the fact that my HSC results were not the most stellar set of results in my universe. Um, So it was probably more of a, well, you couldn't go there, you couldn't go there, you couldn't go there. Well, you could go there. So, so it was sort of a process of elimination. The others were already eliminated for me. Um, I, I, you know, I finished, uh, I came to Australia just at the beginning of the HSC and probably uh, you know, not a great time to be changing countries, changing schools, changing educational systems. Um, but, you know, what it did teach me, it taught me to survive. It taught me to sort of, you know, that, that you, your career might not, or your career path in my case, the education opportunities that were available to me were quite narrow. It, it didn't mean it had to necessarily hold you back. It just meant you had to adapt to what is, is, is before you, what cards you've been dealt, um, and play to your strengths. And you'll find in, in every situation, including studying hotel management, that um, even though it wasn't quite for me, it gave me the entree into my first uh, career role outside of education, which was working for... Um, property business uh, and I ended up working in uh, in their hotel and tourism section um, and this was just at the time when the Japanese were starting to invest very heavily into Australia uh, in the, in the uh, early mid-80s and all of a sudden this business unit that had one or two people in it, I was probably number two, suddenly had this immense amount of demand from financiers and others to provide services to this fast-growing fledgling um, section of the property market being hotel investments properties um so you know even when you didn't necessarily plan to land somewhere opportunity arises and opportunity can strike and you just got to sort of grab it when it comes and i certainly did then and that proved to be a very uh fast learning time of my life because i didn't know very much about finance and about hotel investment banking which was something that we were starting to learn a lot about um but it was great, you know, from there, from Australia, I got sent over to Asia, spent three years in Singapore, setting up um, the operation for this particular company then. Um, and then eventually when I came back to, to Australia, knowing a lot about property, I managed to then leverage the property angle into, into a retail property role, and that's when I joined David Jones. And what prompted the original move, like you said, last year of high school, hard time to be moving, changing from South Africa to Australia? What sort of triggered that move and that decision? Oh, my parents moved, you know, the move from South Africa to Australia was a decision that my dad took, uh, for which I'm immensely and forever grateful. Um, you know, he had four kids. I was the youngest. Uh, the other two were sort of studying overseas and my sister and I sort of came over straight away and then my brother and other sister joined shortly thereafter. And, you know, the family got back together again because growing up in South Africa at the time of apartheid was, was a pretty tenuous um, existence. It wasn't, uh, you know, it didn't have a long future uh, absent a lot of violence. And, you know, now, now the South Africa that came out of that is fantastic. And obviously, when Nelson Mandela was released from jail and then became president, there was a fairy tale story in the making, but there was a lot of blood um, spent on the streets by a lot of, um, um, you know, through a lot of demonstrations that made South Africa a very unlivable place for a very long period of time. 
Yeah, and then like you said, you've kind of um, pivoted, reinvented yourself. You're at David Jones, again, an iconic brand for you know probably close to a century. Um, and, and what was the experience like there? Again, you've come in through being a, a small part of a small team and then kind of rode a great trend and momentum and sort of, like you said, learning as you go. And then once you're in David Jones, what was that experience like being in a big brand and coming from maybe not what you expected, but, you know, an exciting opportunity? Then what was that sort of David Jones work journey like? David Jones was possibly one of the greatest jobs that um, I, anyone could ever get. Uh, you're working for a brand like David Jones, which is one of the most loved retail brands in the country. And even though I went in there just to deal with a property matter, and it was a small issue at the time, um, I got on very, very well with the CEO and some of the board members and eventually uh, stayed on and stayed on and eventually was offered a full-time role. Um, it was actually quite hedonistic because I'd never seen the other side of the, of the fashion retail business as I as I had when I went to DJs. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter where you are or who you are. DJs has played a role for pretty much most people's upbringing in one way, shape or form. Either they, they've shopped there or they've, they've worked there or they've been gifted a product from there or, um, you know, if they were young enough, they'd go to the, uh, the Santa Parade that used to feature prominently uh, in Elizabeth Street, Sydney and also in Melbourne. Um, not, so, you know, Great retailers used to be, you know, ingratiate themselves as to a part of the community that they operated within, and David Jones was no exception. Um, and it was from 2005 to about 2009, they were incredibly fun, fast-filled, you know, glamour, fashion, new stores. It was good. The company was doing very, very well. It was growing. It was being run very, very efficiently and very successfully. And then, uh, you know, then we had uh, changing retail fortunes began around 2012, um, shortly thereafter, the uh, the business was actually acquired. David Jones was a public listed company in its own right, and it was acquired by a South African business called Woolworths South Africa, but no relationship to Woolworths Australia. Mm-hmm. And Woolworths South Africa also owned the Country Road Group, or majority of the Country Road Group at the time. And they were bringing these two businesses together, and they had great plans for David Jones. But generally, whenever you get, whenever you are the acquiry you know in other words when a company acquires the business that you're mm. working for you don't want to hang around because whatever ideas that they bring in they're bringing in ideas that basically suggest that your ideas aren't um, quite as good as they need to be um, otherwise they you know wouldn't have probably um, had to you know make the acquisition in the first place they obviously saw the opportunity to take David Jones from where it was to a different threshold and look hindsight history has proven that it was a tough move that they set out to try and do something with David Jones and it hasn't been successful. Um, I loved my time there. I genuinely loved working for an iconic brand like David Jones and I loved working in um, parts of the business that I've never, you know, never had any experience. It was the first time that I'd been given the responsibility for the, uh, for a technology business. I was, uh, as a COO, I had responsibility for the, for the IT uh, function um, at David Jones as well as actually the gift card uh, business um, amongst many other parts of the business because you, you know, collected all of the parts of the business that, that, that didn't belong into merchandise or into, um, into staff which were run by other parts uh, and marketing. And um, yeah, it was a great job. Um, and I was very sad to, to leave, um, but it was the right time. 10 years in any one gig is generally about the duration that I tend to find in my own life. Um, and that opportunity then allowed me to land at Prezi. 
And what was it about Prezi? Like you said, you saw the potential, but it's big change. I imagine environment being a COO at, like I said, an iconic giant um, long-term brand like David Jones. It's going through its own challenges, but but how did you sort of weigh up that versus staying in the big corporate world, going to a different sector, doing something completely different? What was it about Prezi that sort of captured your interest and attention? Derek, they, they are very good questions, all of them. And uh, I wish I'd actually made clearer notes back then. Um, because, because sometimes I'd sit there going, it was a fairly big risk coming in from a big corporate brand like David Jones, having you know, probably close to 200 people working um, in my business unit, um, big revenues, big turnover, uh, and then to coming to a, to a business where I was employee number 10. Um, and I guess uh, two things happened. One is the private equity, the, the, the managing partner of the private equity business that, that effectively funded Percy from its uh, beginning from its very, very beginning, um, rang me up and, and asked, you know, my view as to whether the business, uh, what the future could look like and where it could go. And he obviously knew I had uh, reasonably solid skills in retailing. And Pezzi at the end of the day is a retailer. It just happens to be a retailer of a digital product that is distributed um, online. Um, but it still has to sell a product. It still has to have a value proposition that appeals to its customers. Um, and... Uh, you know, I came into a business, I think when I walked in the door, I probably doubled the average age of everybody who worked here. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I think there were a lot of sort of people going, what is a guy who comes from an analog business, you know, department mm. stores, you can't get more analog than that. Mm. Um, you know, what does that person know about trying to drive a fast-growing, agile technology startup? Um and it's probably fair to say that we both learned in those first six months. I learned a hell of a lot about the technology startup business. Um, but it was also, you know, also realized at the time that the business, not having a clear business plan, not having a clear strategy meant it was going wherever they thought the opportunity was. And so that sometimes could just sort of look a bit like sheep roaming a paddock. You know, suddenly they're driving off in one direction because there's a, hey, we're going to go and do something with this particular company or this particular vertical and it's going to be really good and if we can get with them, we're going to get with everybody. And then they'd sort of get three quarters of the way through that project and they'd dive off in another direction and do something mm. very different. Um, so not having a, a very clear purpose and a very defined business strategy just meant that they never actually got to fulfill any of the um, uh, individual sort of potentials that, that existed in any of the products. So, yeah, one of the first things that we did when I got here, um, believe it or not, was actually set a budget for the remainder of the year because mm -hmm. there wasn't one. Um, and then the next thing we did was we set a strategy for the next year, just like this is what we're going to do as a team. Um, and from those sort of early days of just putting some basic business disciplines into place and obviously getting people to focus. You know, the biggest challenge with any startup business is because you're doing everything. Yeah, you could be the you could be the accountant, you could be the coffee maker, you could be the coder, you could be the chief operating officer and you could also write presentations. Hmm. Um, because, you know, budgets are small and everybody's running on the smell of an oily rag. But, but the key element there is to still stay focused. You know, what is, what is the key, what is the one thing we need to do if we're only going to do one thing in the next 12 months that will guarantee us success? Um, and when you ask that question across a business that, you, that you've newly arrived to and you end up getting 
and I was employee number 10. So I had nine different answers. It made me realize that actually this business it didn't really quite know exactly what it wanted to be and where it needed to go. Because if there's nine people and there's nine different answers, that truly means there is, there is, there is, um, um, that, that, that lack of focus was probably, you know, the biggest Achilles heel. Um, so how did you get to that one strategy? Like you've got your ideas, your backgrounds, you're, you're interacting with all these different people. Some of them probably feel a lot of ownership sort of of the business because they've been there maybe before you or, or sort of like how did you go from nine people running in nine different directions to a united clear sort of strategy? So um, a couple of things came about. Firstly, the time I joined Prezi, the buy now, pay later sector was just starting to emerge in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that Prezi had at the time when I got here, it had access to at that point in time was about 80 retailer, retail partners. So that meant that anybody plugging into our API, plugging into our, into our universe could gain access to 80 different retailers instantly. Um, so for some of the buy now, pay later players, they did not have those retail relationships with as many retailers. Um, so the first um, idea that we, that we sort of prosecuted was to, to bring on board a buy now, pay later partner that would take our 80 cards and put them on their website so they could sell to their customers, those retail partners using that, that, that company's buy now, pay later product. Um, so even if, even if one of those buy now, pay later players did not have a relationship with a particular retailer, we were providing them with that retailer's gift card, mm. meaning their customers could shop at that retailer's store. And then over time, that buy now, pay later partner would then go and have a one-on-one relationship with that particular retailer. Um, and that proved to be incredibly successful, both for the buy now, pay later uh, launch client that we had um, and for Prezi. And then we obviously stayed very focused on that product and we perfected it until we, we, we absolutely got it working um, seamlessly, um, both in terms of the quality of the service, the delivery. We expanded the range as quickly as we could. We made sure we had all of the much-loved brands that, that retailers, much-loved retail brands that Australians wanted to, to have. Um, and this particular buy now, pay later partner, uh, was the first to market. It was a world first of this particular product. They were the first to market and they did really well with, you know, by having an early mover advantage. Once we had that revenue stream under our feet, um, it bought me runway to then fix my own product. And remembering buy now, pay later means I don't, I don't actually own the customer, the client, that contract can be terminated at a point in time. Mm. Um, and when they go, those customers will go too. So I don't see them as as a long-term strategy, but there was certainly, there was certainly, uh, it was certainly a strategy that allowed us to survive the early, the early period of time, provide the revenue and the cash flow that we then needed that we could reinvest and fix our own products. And our own product was very, very um, sound, but it, the user journey was a little disjointed. It was a little clunky. You know, it was a product that was built in 2015, 2016, and really hadn't been upgraded very much at all. It originally started as an iOS app, and then even the Android version of it did not get feature parity until about 12 months ago you know so even just we just we just never quite caught up with ourselves um, what about like a, at a personal level that first 12 months you come into the business you see some issues but again yourself on the journey from big corporate big brand venture capital coming into a startup what were some of the, the um lessons, the um, surprises, maybe the good, the bad of that massive, I guess, lifestyle pressure for yourself even? 
The biggest uh, lesson I learned was follow the cash. And I've always kind of known that in the back of my mind, in any business you go to, you know, if you want to understand what's going on with that business, just follow the money, find out where it's going. Um, arriving at Prezi and not knowing what its financial health was like was, was quite a was quite a, a sobering moment. It was a, it was a bit of a, oh, if what have I what have I bought into? Mm-hmm. I mean, here's a business that we didn't actually know if we were profitable or not profitable. We didn't know mm-hmm. if we had you know, enough money. Or, you know, the, there was money in the bank, but we weren't quite sure why that money was there and whose was it and was it a you know, security deposit or was it actually our own profit? Or um, So it was all about in the early days, just understand the financial position first and foremost. And once we had the financial position underway and we actually saw that it was in much better shape than we perhaps first thought, it allowed us to then make informed decisions such as we could afford to hire additional staff because up until then everybody was sort of going, oh, we can't afford to hire because we can't afford this. But actually, you know, we, we could afford to hire. It was simply a matter of making the right informed decision. And then it was a what person do you hire what kind of developer do you hire yeah when you've got a this, 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 this lolly yeah this, this this toy shop filled of opportunity you're not quite mm. sure which toy to pick up first um it was very very daunting but at the very early stages yeah fall back on and i did fall back on the two or three things that have held me in good stead all along start with a impractical and unemotional sorry a practical but unemotional um, approach to the business mm-hmm. identify the two or three unique selling points that that business has that nobody else had and then drive the focus to deliver on that unique selling point and once we got that first feature and benefit up and into the app and it started to track trade into christmas of december of 18 you know we saw our sales pop and people went hey that's cool we give customers what they want oh my God, they'll spend more money with us because up until then, we weren't even asking the customers what they wanted. We were just building them what we thought that they wanted based on the original co-founder's idea for the business. Um, and, uh, you know, that was in December of 18. So you can imagine all of 19, 2019, we did a hell of a lot of market research and it was amazing. You know, we spent about 100 hours of market research in 2019 and got, sorry, 1,000 hours and we got about 174 ideas from our customers through that period of time. And they were just simply saying, if you give us these features, we will use your product more. Like how simple is that? Mm-hmm. Give them what they want and they'll spend more money with you. Up until that point in time, we were like giving them this, we were giving them this, but they didn't, we hadn't actually asked them and they hadn't asked for themselves. It was just something that we thought that this is what customers actually wanted. So, you know, once we really saw the opportunity for the business, obviously the first six months were... It was challenging, you know, being an analog guy in a digital business required you just to every single day remain focused, not panic, just absorb the information, try and make fact-based decisions because when you're in a pressured, high-pressured startup environment, it's very easy for the emotions to run high and emotions to run wild and, and people's enthusiasm can sometimes get ahead of the facts. Um, so fact-based decision-making can sometimes be one of the biggest um, um, obstacles that, that a lot of uh, early businesses make. They, 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 they kind of feel intuitively we should be doing this, but actually when they go and get the underlying facts, they should be doing something very, very different. Um, and, you know, Prezi in the first three years of its existence was doing a lot of things intuitively based on the founders' ideas and their entrepreneurial spirit. And that got them to a certain point, but to get from that point to then scale up to a business that, you know, last month issued, just last month, the month of August, we issued close to 400 and 50,000 gift cards just in the month of August of 2020 um, in one month. That was more, that was more volume than we did in Christmas of 2019. Um, And in terms of the gross, 
we probably did more cards in the month of August than we did in all of 2018 combined through the entire year. Um, and that's so just what was that about- growth like, that experience? Like you've got the strategy, you've got the success, you've got the momentum, it's <gasps> the dream come true, you're, you're rapidly scaling oh, up, and then the good and bad of that, that easy. sort of... But, but of once you sort of you hit the stride, what was the, the good and bad of that sort of the, the growing pains and the, the journey? So I guess the first six months I had to earn the stripes. I had to earn the trust of the people around me. You know, analog guy coming into digital business with very different business ideas and a very different approach to how to run a business. Um, and those first six months were a little bit tough because anybody who joined the business before me were obviously very, very loyal to the co-founders. Um, people who I started to hire and bring on board were the people that I wanted to help grow this business and take it to the next direction. So they obviously had to very much believe in the in the direction and the strategy and the dream that I had for the business um, and getting people to, to to understand that and to open their mind to that was probably the most challenging thing in terms of joining a new business like Prezi. Once we had a strategy that everybody felt that they actually contributed to building uh, the strategy, to, to define the strategy, uh, we then set out to actually just deliver on that strategy and I kept saying to the team, if you just do what you've got to do every single day, build the product, to, you know, let the strategy um, provide the features and the benefits, it, yeah, the momentum will, will start to kick in. And once that momentum kicks in, it will continue to grow the business for us. We just needed to get the product right in front of our customers. Um, and then I would say probably from around about September of 2019, we started to see the fruits of that label. You know, the product had improved immeasurably. Um, you know, the user journey was very customer centric. We were aiming to get things like having four clicks to check out. You know, mm-hmm. previously before, uh, before then, before October of last year, um, if you wanted to purchase a Prezi card, it would probably take you 11 or 12 pages. You would know, have to click through 11 mm-hmm. or 12 different pages if you were a new customer before you could actually click that checkout button. You know, the entire end-to-end uh, duration was probably four minutes to, to make a purchase. I've now got it down to about 30 seconds, no, about, about 15 seconds, and you can literally click four buttons and you're out. You're done. You've purchased. That's what customers want. Um, and I didn't know that, by the way. Amazon taught me that. Amazon taught mm-hmm. me that by Amazon, you know, having, you know, you can buy an Amazon product with one click and everybody's gone, oh, my God, how brilliant is that? Now, I can't get to one click because you've got to select a card, select a value, uh, select a recipient you got to send it to somebody and then you got to select purchase so it's a little bit more challenging for us to get to one click which um, we can do one click if it's for self-use if you're buying it for yourself i can do mm-hmm. one click um the, the the i think the 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 most amazing part was was watching all of the people who either were in the business before i got you and the new people who joined since i've got here once people sort of stood back and saw here was our strategy stay focused don't worry about all the noise happening on the outside just stay focused on doing what we said we were going to do and when they saw the results starting to trickle in you know we landed a new feature told our customers about it our customers came and shot with us sales went up it went well wow we gave them a second feature they asked for we told them about it sales went up even more all of a sudden people saw this oh my god if you just give customers what it is that they want how easy is this and i know that sounds really simple but when you haven't necessarily built your business around what your customer has been asking for to then get everybody to start focusing on becoming a customer centric organization doesn't just happen overnight. Um, and in fact, it was probably, you know, Christmas of 2019, I think when the business earned its customer centric stripes. And that was because literally on Christmas day, 
when the team who had worked incredibly hard all needed a day off, it was the CFO who was on customer care that day. It was myself. It was it was the head of sales. It was all the leadership team who basically said to the rest of the guys, guys, we've got the cu- we've got customer care covered. Um, you guys go and enjoy your Christmas lunch. And we ran a rotating shift of everybody doing two, three, four hours over the course of the day. That morning, Christmas Day, the 25th of December, um, was I, I think we sold something like 4,000 gift cards that morning between like 7 a.m. and 10 a.m. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, as we're watching these orders mm. being executed, I'm going like, everybody knows it's Christmas Day, right? Everybody knows you've got to buy a gift before Christmas. And it made me realize on Christmas Day, that's where Prezi actually is at its best is because a lot of people didn't know that their delivery from Aussie Post wasn't going to turn up until Christmas morning. And now they're short a gift and they've come to us last minute because they can get something, they can personalize it, they can make it special and they can have it in their hands or the hands of the recipient in about three seconds flat. So we saw this massive spike on Christmas Day all over Australia, all people all over Australia because whatever gift they had planned hadn't eventuated. And, and I'm quite certain there were a large number of predominantly men uh, in that, in that um, cohort who just forgot to make the purchase and actually suddenly thought, shit, I've got to buy my wife something. Hey, boom, Prezi card. But whatever the reason, whatever the reason, it, it, it was the time when I realized just how Prezi could shine at, at that last minute personalized gifting. Um, and then ever since then, it's just been literally about giving the customer what she wants, what he wants as quickly as we possibly can. You know, now we have an MPS score that runs throughout the company. We have everybody in the team has to spend at least two hours a month on customer service and customer care. And they can hear firsthand what the customers are saying about the product, whether when we've released something new and we see their feedback almost instantly, we can go, hey guys, we've got this wrong. We need to fix it. We need to change it. We need to pull it back and maybe even roll back and put it back out there again so that the customers aren't getting substandard um, code product. And, um, you know, the, the fact that, and here's a really interesting thing, I think the most crowning moment for Prezi, for Team Prezi, was probably in January or February of, of this year. You know, Prezi set out to launch its business internationally in 2020. And the plan was, was I would head overseas and I'd go and see all the buy now, pay later plays in the US with a view to trying to sign somebody up to be our launch client. And then we would provide them with American gift cards and then we would open up a, an office, employ some staff, launch our B2B, launch our B2C. And all of a sudden, COVID came and there was no travel. And now I'm having to try and grow this business over Zoom, you know, pitching to the likes of Afterpay in the US or QuadPay in the US or Affirm or Klein, all these big companies I've never heard of. They've gone Prezi who from where? Like we've <laughs> never sold a gift card outside of Australia um, before July of this year. We've never sold a gift card outside of Australia. And yet we had this amazing product and we were able to convince two US by now pilot customers to sign up with the little old Prezi business from Australia. Hadn't met these people face to face, couldn't travel. Both of them signed, we negotiated over Zoom, we signed the contract. They both went live in July with us providing them with their content. Uh, we launched our B2C product in the US in October. We launched our B2B product in the US probably a week or two after the B2C product. Um, you know, all of that's been done from a, a business in Australia that just specializes on digital gifting and using digital gift cards as a, as a way to thank, reward, and also acquire customers and uh, allow other group businesses, startup businesses like Afterpay and Zip grow their own business by giving them a product that they didn't have before we came along. 
I think that's a great segue into the, the broader changes in retail. So being, like I said, in an analog, you know, giant sort of well-loved brand, David Jones, during the, the sort of the early 2000s, during the boom times, being there through the financial crisis, the transition, like you said, to digital e-commerce, just shifting in the, the landscape. Obviously, COVID has shifted um, the e-commerce offline, the general retail landscape. So, so what trends do you see in Australian retail, being so close, so embedded, being in there for a long time? You know, what are the most successful retailers doing and what are the ones who are struggling or getting left behind failing to do? Look, it's a tough one because there's, there's a lot of incredibly successful retailers, both pure play, e-commerce, you know, Iconic or Kogan come to mind as being two standout um, um, beacons of uh, e-commerce success stories in terms of their growth and, the, and, their, and, their, and the, the, their market penetration. But in terms of the, the traditional, you know, the bricks and clicks retailers, there are a lot of very successful businesses in that space too. And there are some that are sort of caught in between. And, you know, the department stores are caught in between at the moment. But, you know, the number of times people have written department stores off, you know, department stores were written off in the, in the early 2000s. They've been written off so many different times over the course of, of a, you know, David Jones must be getting close to 190-odd years old now. Um, and, yeah, department stores are doing it tough in part because they have very large real estate footprints and they don't need mm. such big footprints. So there is no doubt that for retailers generally to survive and I'm not talking about your Coles and your Woolies and your essential service providers I'm talking your discretionary spends people are going to realize they can do what they need to do with half the real estate footprint that they currently have and a really good e-commerce engine on the side because customers you know one of the great things about David Jones customers love going into the city they love going to David Jones it's, a, it's an outing it's an experience and the same can be said for Maya too by the way in their hallmark CBD stores mm. but when you get to the fringe suburbs where they've just got a, a store that doesn't really present itself any differently to Target or Kmart then why you know why why do you need to have uh, a, a David Jones within a, a twenty, a ten-kilometer radius of the majority of the Australian population. David Jones made its success on being the store you went to, mm. as opposed to the store it came to you. So I think successful retailer going forward will be very much a blend between a strong footprint of where you can go on. You know, shopping is notwithstanding COVID, shopping is still an awesome pastime for the vast majority of Australians. It's mm. shopping centres are a social engagement. People go there to to meet their friends. They go there to to do their gym class, to see their doctor, to to, to take their kids to um, for their X-rays, to buy their school shoes, to do their weekly shopping. They are they are almost magnets of of, of um, sort of the old, you know, they're the equivalent of the high street environment in in, in parts of the UK. Um, that means they will continue to survive. There will just be perhaps the need for less uh, um, footprint, less real estate out there. I think that there will be more discerning use of that space. So there might be, there will still be David Jones, but there might not be 40 of them. There might just be 20. There will still be Maya, but there might be 30. There will still be Target, but there might be half the number of stores than there actually are right now, which is, if you read most of the, the brand owners that I've just referenced, they're all talking about how to give up space. They all will survive. They all want to survive and they will survive. But they will survive with a much reduced real estate footprint and a really good online um, um, experience so that if you can't get to the store, you can still get whatever it is that you want from your favorite store, same day or next day. And that's, you know, that's one thing that most retailers in Australia can still give you. And that is either same day, if you're in Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane or the metropolitan areas there, or pretty much next day, depending where you are in Australia. 
Yeah, and, and so stepping beyond retail, looking for entrepreneurship, new business in, in Australia more generally, obviously interacting in the US, uh, UK, other markets, you're, you're from South Africa. What things do you see entrepreneurs in Australia doing well and where are you know, Australian entrepreneurs perhaps you know, a step behind certain other major markets? Aussie entrepreneurs, I mean, you look at Tide to have this conversation without referencing Afterpay. I mean, Afterpay mm. is on the ASX top 20 most valuable stocks in the country. You know, more valuable than Coles. Like, and that happened. That happened in the course of this year. It went from being almost extinct in terms of a share price at $8 to, to $100. And mm. that happened in the space of about a three-month window. Uh, all, du- all during COVID, it was at its low point in COVID and it's what it's at its high point in COVID. So I think there is a really good example of Aussie entrepreneurship. They took an idea, albeit it might not have invented the idea, but they took a really good idea and they took an idea that resonated with the Gen Z, with the millennial, with the customers that they represented and, and they used social media to, to, to effectively spread that, that, that product and to engage their customers and to grow that business. And I think that the Aussie entrepreneurs have learned how to use social media successfully and you know very effectively um and then they've taken it overseas quickly um you know it, it's not it's, it's it's not by chance that most of the buy now pay later listed buy now pay later companies in the world all use australia use the asx um for their for their base and i'm talking even companies like OpenPay and Sezzle who do not trade in australia they trade overseas mm. and uh in and yet they still are listed on the asx because of the multiple that we give them in terms of the value of their business of their company um so i think Aussies have done really well in the fintech space uh, we've done very very well in the creative space you know if you go back if you go back one cycle uh, yeah what is what is a cycle five to ten years mm-hmm. you know aussies were being lauded Creative was being lauded because they were either, you know, whether they were in Hollywood, whether they were fashion designers, you know, hitting New York Fashion Week. The creative side of Australia is what is awesome at being exported. We are really creative as a as a nation, and we are very good at exporting houses. Whether it's a whether it's a mainstream actor, a Hollywood actor, mm-hmm. you know, who's built a, a brand around himself or herself, or whether it's a brand, an Aussie brand that has taken itself internationally, a, a, a fashion brand or a a designer brand or whatever the case may be. Um, the risk, I think, then comes into the fact that, you know, launching internationally, any business trying to go overseas requires deep pockets, requires a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't got a strategy that's going to get you into a reasonably cash flow neutral position within sort of 12 to 24 months, it's the thing that brings everybody unstuck. They sort of think, hey, I can launch in New York, in the US, I'll go over, I'll open up whatever. And, and you know, the, the old saying, if I build it, if, if I build it, they will come, except they don't quite come as fast, they don't quite mm-hmm. come as regularly, and they don't spend as much. And all of a sudden, you're not making money in that market, but you don't want to quit that market because you've really been there for a year and you you know you're a year closer to, to, to breaking even so a lot of Aussies will go overseas but they haven't got the balance sheet to support their growth strategy um, and I think what you've seen with with some of the more recent Aussie um, entrepreneurs like zip and and afterpay they bolstered their balance sheets first they went overseas second mm. And so going back on, onto yourself, you know, looking back at your younger self, you're a bit unsure, you're trying different things, maybe you feel not a lot of doors are open to you from your, your school marks or just a bit uncertain in general. What advice would you give your sort of 18 to 20-year-old self knowing what you know now about sort of life and work and business? Um, you know, the advice I'd give myself and anybody else who might be listening to this is there is no scripted future. You don't just 
come out of school, get a good grade, go to university, get a degree, go into a job, and hey, boom, that's your fairy tale output outcome. Um, you, you're going to get lots of opportunities and you're going to get lots of roadblocks. Um, I think the one bit of advice that I would say is just never be afraid to realize you've made a bad decision and make mm -hmm. a different decision. So for me, you know, I went to university, studied a particular course. I realized it whilst I was there, it wasn't for me. And, you know, then telling my parents, actually, I wasn't going to that career. I was going to go and find something totally different. Yeah, that was pretty tough. But it's for them to accept having just put me through university at that time. And for me to actually to having to make that decision because I didn't have any life experience to base those sorts of decisions on. You know, you, you just got a little bit of enthusiasm and a little bit of perhaps uh, useful arrogance and you kind of think, <laughs> I know best. And sometimes that is exactly what you need. Um, don't be afraid to recognize you've made a bad decision because actually – it's then it's not a bad decision. It was a learning. It was a life learning. It gave you some pointers of, hey, I went there. It wasn't working out. And you made a different decision to move you away from that to somewhere else that is hopefully going to allow you to get there. Um, and, and for some individuals, that might take two or three goes. It's okay. Don't get just think, oh, my God, I'm a lawyer. I've got to study I studied law. I've got to become a lawyer for the rest of my life. And you get in there and you're not loving it because you're going to be doing it for the rest of your life. Um, you know, my, my dad said to me, and this is probably something I would say to him, Anybody else who ever works with me, I think a lot of people who work with me get sick and tired of sharing some of my old sayings, but it's one of my favourites. You know, on your deathbed, sorry, it's not meant to be a, not meant to be a morose sort of comment, but on your deathbed, if you look back at your career and it didn't work out okay, you've got no one else to blame but yourself. Make the hard decision early. It's okay. You can get it wrong often. You know, most people will have seven careers post high school. Anybody who sort of leaves school any time from 2010 onwards will probably have seven different careers in the course of their lives. You know, when my dad went to uh, finish university, he was going to potentially have one or maybe two, you know, one, you know, whatever you did, you did, and that was it. Um, I like the idea of seven. I like the idea of you don't like something, reinvent yourself. How cool is that? You know, you get to play across everything. You get to become, it's like doing, you know, back. it's like being a swimmer. You can do breaststroke, backstroke, butterfly. You can do it all. You don't have to specialize into one thing. So that would be the one thing I would say to my, uh, my youthful self. It's okay to make the wrong decision. Just, just, just cut it early and move on and, and, and learn from it. And that's probably applies to most people in life anyway. Yeah. Mm. And we it removes a lot of that pressure. Like you said, if, if you feel like you're making a 50 or 60 year career decision, it, it, that is a lot of pressure. But if you think, well, maybe it's an eight year, 10 year career decision, well, you know, in 10 years you'll learn and you'll go somewhere else. So it's sort of, it, it and, removes that's, that and how cool is that? Yeah. Because pressure. it just means, Hey, you do something for five or seven years and you go, you know what? I'm bored with someone try something else. Mm. Like that's kind of amazing. You know, that, that, and that's kind of what, you know, the, 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 the economy that, that, you know, that we have today, there are parts of it I don't love. I don't love the gig economy part. I don't love the fact that there are parts of our economy that don't necessarily have safety net for a lot of people, you know, who might be playing in the gig economy, but it does allow you to move around a bit and to, to really experience the broadness of, of life. Yeah. And, and so going back. Like yourself. Yeah, Almost. absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and so going back onto Prezi, what does the future, the next five or 10-year 10, 10 vision, goals, direction look like? You mentioned US expansion, other markets, the UK, obviously the, the buy now, pay later has been a pivotal point. What sort of future high-level ideas or strategies come to mind? Um, I would like to think that Prezi will be trading in eight markets by June of 2022. Um, mm -hmm. We've already got Australia um, and we're already in the US, albeit it's still it's very early in the sense the state days um, and then we'll follow it up with, with, with NZ, UK, uh, Canada and most of the English speaking countries first just because it means I don't have to change my web and I don't have to change my 
my customer service um, approach because of the language. Um, but but we actually see gifting or gift cards really not as the sole product of Prezi. Prezi is effectively a payment. It's a payment provider. Gift mm-hmm. card just happens to be a form of payment that we currently use. Um, and we've got a couple of other products that are in development, one of which is a product called Prezi Pay. Um, and Prezi Pay effectively allows anybody to download a Prezi Pay app and then accept a Prezi gift card as payment for any goods or service. You don't have to even be a member of FPOS or Visa or MasterCard. You literally just download the app and anybody with a Prezi card can walk into your shop or if you're a golf pro, they can come into your golf pro or tennis or whatever the case may be and use that Prezi card that that we sell a hell of a lot of um, and use it for payment anywhere. Just boom, by tapping it against your phone. So we see a lot of new features and new products that are going to come in the payment space, um, particularly as, you know, if you can operate in the agile space without having to tie yourself to some kind of legacy banking relationship, which is how a lot of the old payment processes work. And that's effective what the BNPL sector, the buy now, pay later guys have shown. You don't have to get a credit card if you want to go shopping. You can you can go to Afterpay or Zip or Klarna. And isn't American Express and MasterCard and Visa cards screaming about that? But, you know, they just even Apple, didn't detect. Right? Apple's got their merchant even, terminals, Apple Pay. People say, are they going to have a pay, currency? Everywhere you go, Apple Pay merchant? is yeah. – totally, totally. So there is, a, there is a fundamental transformation underway in the payment space. And in five years' time, I'd like to see Prezi continuing to participate and to, in, you know, play in that space and encourage that transformation along with the likes of the Buy Now Pay Later players and, and other new startups that are like some of the neobanks that are – just shaking the traditional way things get done. Yeah, so it sounds like, in a sense, it could even be a future sort of Prezi almost as a secondary currency, right? Like you said, being able to use it different places, different uh, across different merchants, within a limited scope, obviously not, yeah. but, but sort of Absolutely. almost like a secondary a- currency. Absolutely. I mean, truly, you know, uh, effectively, you know, at the end of the day, Prezi is nothing more than just taking a value, a stored value that's held in the card, we just happen to call it a Prezi card, and moving it to to a retailer because you want to buy a particular goods or service from that retailer. Um, whether it's a gift card you get from David Jones or you take your Prezi card and you walk into Derek's Cafe, for example, and you pay for your coffee, does it matter? It's just, it's, 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 it's effectively allowing somebody to get their reward um, without having to use cash or a credit card. Simple. Would there be any connection to a blockchain, a cryptocurrency? Is that sort of an idea on a there, whiteboard? There, or yeah, there are a few the people here who would love to, who would love for me to be, um, going down that path. Um, I think there is a potential for uh, not so much crypto, but for this to, to exist within the blockchain. But at the moment, yeah, the beauty of it is it actually sits in a, in a really simple app that connects to my ledger and allows a transaction to occur. Mm. Uh, in fact, the, the transaction can occur. Uh, uh, I can have the money in your account before whoever's standing in front of you has left your shop. Mm. Um, so perhaps in time, the blockchain might have some potential for us at this point in time. Um, I think we've got, you know, we've probably got enough uh, uh, flexibility just by allowing transactions to occur, you know, without having to travel on Visa Master, um, FPOS, etc. cetera. Um, and, and that's probably the, been the big eye-opener for me is just the ease at which you can set something up to create a platform, a payments platform, without having to rely on some of the old traditional and very expensive rails that are traditionally required to facilitate, to facilitate payments. Yeah, and do you have any final words, thoughts, comments you'd like to leave the audience with? I think it's been lovely chatting to you. I really enjoyed uh, some of your questions. I think uh, 
the um, you know the the, the the what what you bring to to people who might be listening, and hopefully some of the younger members of our community, you know, generation, not so much very young, but people sort of at uni. Yeah, you know, there is so much information out there, and podcasts are such a brilliant way to impart some of that information. So, hats off to you for what you do and for continuing with your own. Um, you know, career shift in terms of uh, of of of, uh, of growing as part of the of the universe. And well done, and thanks for inviting me to participate in your in this conversation. Excellent, thank you so much, Tony. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.